At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as an athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com slash globe. Welcome to Today on Firehouse, the new firehouse.com podcast, which will be rolling out twice a month. Uh, we appreciate everybody who's joining us today. Uh, please check back every month on the 1st and the 15th for a new podcast. Uh, my name is Peter Matthews. I'm the editor-in-chief of Firehouse. And um, looking forward to doing this podcast, giving us an opportunity to get away from the written word from time to time uh, and, and, and interview and talk with some of the uh, fire service leaders, uh, some of the biggest names we've got um, in the industry, as well as um, some of the firefighters out there who are making a difference uh, at their department and on a nationwide basis. Um, so really excited to have John Salka from FDNY, retired battalion chief, is our first guest on today at Firehouse. Um, John, last year at Firehouse Expo, was inducted into the Firehouse Hall of Fame. Uh, John has been a longtime contributor to Firehouse. Um, he was actually one of the first hot instructors we ever had at the Firehouse Conferences, Firehouse Expo, and Firehouse World. Um, so John's been uh, a huge part of Firehouse for many years, um, but that's really a small part of what John's done. John's traveled, I think we could say, all across the country, all across the world, talking about firefighting and leadership. So, uh, John, welcome. And if you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself um, uh, for, the, for the few folks who probably don't know who you are. Sure, sure. Thank you, Peter. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. It's always a pleasure to... Uh, as you just said, to, to venture outside the written word a little bit. Sometimes, uh, you know, when, when you're writing, whether it's an article or a blog or whatever it is, it's sort of you and the page, you know, or you and the computer, however it is you're writing. And, uh, and, and it's sort of one-dimensional. And then when you get into talking to people, whether it's one or two or three people, uh, you know, on the radio or on a different kind of a show, uh, it, it's a little bit more fast-paced, a little bit more interesting, and you can change the topic up in the middle of the conversation. But, uh, again, thank you for having me for the first uh, – for the first Firehouse uh, podcast. Um, yeah, as you already mentioned, <clears throat> I got on the FDNY. Was, uh, I, I luckily got on at the very tail end of the 70s, 1979, I got, I got sworn in. And uh, I, I did 33 years. I, I, you know, I got appointed the 34 engine, which was a relatively, uh, it wasn't relatively, it was the slowest engine in Manhattan, as a matter of fact, which created a unique situation for me. I was, I was terribly, terribly, terribly excited to be on the FDNY. I waited. I had been in a volley department. I had been in a paid department down in Florida for a couple of years in Titusville on the, on the uh, East Coast near, uh, near Kennedy Space Center. And I finally got on a job, and I came back from Florida and went through the academy. So I was, as I already said, t terribly excited, very excited to be on the FDNY. And at the very exact same moment, simultaneously, parallel, I was terribly terribly disappointed to be in 34 engine and I and, and it's nothing against the company at all except that it was the opposite of what I was looking for I was looking to go to fires and be busy and go to rescue you know do everything so uh, make a long story short I got out of there pretty quick I'm not quite sure how I did it I I was just young probationary firefighter John Salka back then I was not a writer or an author or firehouse magazine or anything and I managed to talk to the right people and I went down to 11 truck on the lower east side of Manhattan after about one year 
and just just stepped into it. You know, it was a great place. It was busy. It had been much busier earlier, but I still caught some of the great work there and met some great people. And I and I always say that's where I became a firefighter down there, fireman. Um, and eventually it slowed down a little bit and I got enough fires under my belt down there. I said, hey, what do these rescue guys do, you know? And uh, I started talking to the captain of Rescue 3, Billy Ryan. And uh, before you know it, I'm not quite sure how long it took a while, but I got I got detailed up to and eventually transferred to Rescue 3 up in, up in Harlem in the Bronx, which is where I met Harvey Eisner from Firehouse Magazine. That's actually where the Firehouse connection started. And Harvey was one of those quiet guys that hung around the firehouse and jumped on the rig with us and took pictures and maybe would quietly talk to somebody. And eventually he asked me to write an article. Gee, you want to write an article? I'm like, you, you talking to me? Me write an article? You know? And uh, make a long story short, I did. And one thing led to another, another article, and another one before you know it, I was invited to Baltimore. And uh, and, and that's how the whole firehouse, um, my whole original firehouse connection started. And I and I wrote, I, I think I wrote for, I guess many years is a pretty good, a pretty pretty accurate description. Many years, a couple of times, all feature articles. I didn't have a column or anything, you know. What were you gonna say? No, well, you have to start small. So, and the feature yeah, is a great spot you know, to get in and, and kind of break uh, break you into the writing pattern. Absolutely, and that's a great lesson for guys and gals right now in 2020. People that are thinking about it. And I have some great stories about some people that have come to me. And said, hey, chief, I got a little something I want to submit to Firehouse, and I either call you or back then I'd call Harvey and, and try and get some people going. And, it's you know, obviously the magazine's always looking for new people. There's always room for new people. There's always a new generation coming through. So uh, so I did. This was, again, back in the early 80s, and uh, and I started writing for Harvey and then, and then speaking at, at the expo and had a lot of fun doing that. And now eventually I made lieutenant, and I, and I left Rescue 3, and I, I actually went back down to the Lower East Side to 18 truck, which was a different truck, but right next door to where I had been previously and stayed there for a little bit. And then they opened up SOC, which is Special Operations Command. It didn't actually exist back then, but it was a, a new idea and they opened it up and, and I got a call from them saying, hey, listen, you were already in the rescue and you were, you know, would you like to come back to SOC? Not for a company necessarily, but to bounce around and fill in the spots and maybe eventually get a spot in one of the rescues or a squad. And I said, sure. And that did eventually lead to a spot in squad one. There was just one squad at the time. Um, and it was in Brooklyn. The guys used to answer the phone at the house watch, the one and only. That's how they would answer it, the one and only. But uh, it was pretty funny. Great place, great guys. Guys like Joe Downey, Ray Downey's son, Freddie Lafamina, guys all that became chiefs in the job and stuff were all my firemen back then. And uh, we had just a wonderful time. Of course, we lost about five or six guys on 9-11 out, out of that group. Some of them were still in the squad. Some of them had gone on to other places, um, which was tragic. But, uh, so I stayed there for four or five years and made captain and went to 48 engine in the Bronx and had a great time up there, 6,000 runs at a time, and uh, eventually made battalion chief where I stopped studying and slowed down, and I, I hung out in the 18th battalion for, I guess, about 15 or 16 of my 17 years as a battalion chief um, and retired back in 2012. So I'm, uh, I made the turn. I rounded third, and uh, but I'm still in the game, you know. That's great. That's great. And yeah. so, Chief, just tell us a little bit about, I mean, Rescue 3. Um, I think now when when folks are thinking about, you know, the FDNY rescue companies, uh, you know, it, it is it is technical rescue. And, and, you know, as fires are down in certain parts of the country, and I guess, unfortunately, even New York City has seen, uh, you know, that decline. 
Um, and you mentioned, you know, special operations was started after uh, you left rescue. But what was what was it like working in Rescue 3 back in the heyday? Uh, I mean, you know, if you were on a night tour, what was your traditional or typical night tour? What was that like? I got to tell you, it was great. It was great. And, and, I would, and I was there with the likes of John Norman and Nick Giordano and, and Jay Jonas and, and, and other guys, other, other familiar names. We, we, we were all sort of a new generation that were, that were sneaking in there. And uh, you, you, you must know that more than half of the company was a bunch of old buffaloes, a bunch of guys that were 55 and 60 years old and just old salty guys with busted fingers and big mustaches. And, you know, it was just that they had, they had really seen the war years, but it was great to break in under them you know, in a rescue because they had so much, so much experience. Some of them were World War II veterans, you know, Dick Hannon and the likes, um, running, you know, running all the time. I don't, I don't think I had any shifts where we didn't even, you know, any 24s where we didn't go out the door. And we covered Harlem and the Bronx, which are two of the big, two of the biggest hotspots, you know, in the whole, in the whole job. Um, we had the old R-Model R-Model, R-Model Mac, which was the bulldog, the one with the big, the big hood, you know, in the front. And, uh, and, and as you already brought up, it wasn't a technical rescue kind of a situation. None of the rescues really were back then. Two of them did some scuba diving. I think it was one and four did scuba diving. Uh, everybody else pretty much just did rescue stuff and extrications. Um, while I was there, I think they introduced hazmat to rescue four. That was like their side job, hazmat, which eventually became okay. a whole company. But uh, it was just hearse tools and axes and halligans and circular saws and cutting roofs and making searches, and it was, it was fantastic. It was great. Um, and, then, you know, then coming back and eating dinner. Of course, when I was there, it was on 181st Street with 45, 45 uh, truck, 93 engine, the, the 1-3 battalion, and a rescue. There were 20 guys on duty. There were 20 people wow. on duty. We had three big dinner tables in the kitchen. It was, it was phenomenal. And uh, that was a pretty crappy neighborhood, too. So we caught some work uh, locally as well. But uh, it was I had a, a lot of fun. I only stayed there for a few years, you know, and, and I got promoted. I, I, I hated to leave, but I was, you know, on, on, a, on a track to get promoted. And I did that. I studied and, uh, and, and made my way up, up the ranks. But uh, it, it was a great place to be for uh, three or four years. And uh, I had a great time and, and learned a lot from a lot of a lot of guys that have a lot, a lot of experience, which is a great you know a great teacher. Uh, it sounds like a great place to kind of you know get get your feet down as you're you know moving up the ladder. You 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 gain that experience, and you're also hearing from those veterans, uh, fire service and, and military veterans, to to kind of help form your leadership. Which we could talk about that a little bit as you kind of travel around. You know that's one of your big things right now, or has been, is is leadership. Um, but mm -hmm, we'll, we'll mm -hmm. jump on that here in a little bit. So, sure. um, and, and, you know, another interesting thing is you talked about uh, when you first got assigned to SOC and, and you're kind of bounced around to different uh, companies. Um, as an officer who's coming in um, at that point, is it to say at that point that they were more focused on tech rescue and, and, and you know, fast truck operations or grid operations and that kind of stuff? And as, as you're bouncing around, how are you ensuring that the guys that you're working with those days um, are, you know, at the same level where you are, that everybody's on the same page? I mean, it, it's it's probably not uncommon that shortly after you get in the firehouse in the morning or at night, uh, you know, the tones went off and you guys were out the door. So how did you kind of work through to make sure everybody that 
you were working with as an officer, you guys were on the same page. Well, I got to tell you, in SOC, and even in the early days of SOC, which is Special Operations Command, um, the guys were, were just great, and they were exceptional. And, 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 I, and I know that's true today, too. It's evolved a little bit. It's, a, it's evolved into a much, much more technical operation now than it used to be. I mean, there's a rescue school now. There was no rescue school when I went to Rescue 3. You went to Rescue 3, you went on a detail, so they call it an onion skin. Onion skin is really just a description of it. It's an old type of paper, like, uh, and it literally was like onion skin. It was a very, very thin kind of paper that you used to get. Instead of a, the regular, more expensive white paper that you'd put into a typewriter, onion skin was cheaper, and so they would type your name on there, and they would say you would be in detail somewhere. So that's why they call it an onion skin. But, so you'd go there on a detail, which is really a temporary assignment. So you go from 11 truck, which is where I was assigned, to Rescue 3. And if you work out and you fit in and you don't screw it up, they keep you. And about three months later, four months later, you transfer on, on the department order. And it's, and it's written down and it's done. And you don't go back to the gun. You get a front piece for your helmet and that's the end of that. And if you're a shitbird or if you don't know what you're doing or you got a bad attitude, they, they just send you back to where you came from and say, ah, you know what, this isn't working out. So needless to say, um, I stayed. But... Um, and now when you do, you know, when you're a covering officer in SOC, the, the firefighters are just fantastic in the rescue companies and squad one, right? They, they're all handpicked. They were back then all handpicked. Now they're, <clears throat> I guess you'd call it semi-handpicked, but I'll talk about that in a minute. So back then handpicked was literally the captain chose you. If he chose you, you came out there. If he said you're staying, you stayed. And that's all it was too, it was the one man the captain of the rescue company, the company commander. In my case, that was Billy Ryan, great guy. Um, now, years have gone by, special operations went into, operate, you know, went, went into existence, and now it's a much bigger process. Actually, the process changed after 9-11, which is now 20 years ago almost, and it, which, is, which is just hard for me to even imagine. I was there, and it doesn't seem like 20 years ago, but after 9-11, the cops made all the ESU patrol police officers, they, they made them detectives, which was a considerable raise and a gold badge, and it was a whole new step for them. Well, we don't have an appointed rank in the fire department. Every rank is a civil service rank, so the fire department simply gave them a raise. They get like a $13,000 raise. So a guy in 45 truck working in the same firehouse with Rescue 3 be making 13 grand less than a fireman in the rescue. So needless to say, now that once they tie money into it, now everybody and his brother wanted to go there. Certainly, there was always a steady flow of guys that want to go to rescue because they want to do more work, and, and it's interesting work. So now you had this other fringe of group of people that wanted to go maybe just for the money or maybe for the work and the money. So now it became interviews with the chief of rescue services, and the rescue battalion had to come down and evaluate you, and the captain was sort of given a subservient role, a smaller role, and uh, that, unfortunately, is the way it is today. It's not a terrible system. It's just dramatically different than it used to be. So, so there I am bouncing around in rescue companies and squad one with, with really experienced firefighters. I'm a new lieutenant. I got like seven years on the job. Now, I came out of the rescue, and I was in 11 truck, which was a busy outfit, but I w wasn't by any stretch of the imagination a senior firefighter or, or anything like that. So I was learning a lot from the folks I was working with. And, and if anything, maybe I had to sort of catch up to them a little bit uh, from, a, from an experienced perspective. Most of the guys in the rescues back then had 15 or 18 or 20 years, you know, so I was a relatively young guy. Um, however, I learned a lot. And when it was an opportunity for me, to, for me to teach and impart some knowledge on something that I was experienced in, you know, I, I did that as well. Most of the folks, as I said, that were in the 
in this in a uh, special operations companies were were professionals. They were very good. They would never, you know, look down their nose at you because you're a young officer. You might get some you might get some funny comments at the kitchen table now and then, but uh, uh, it was great. It was great. I, I I had a great time bouncing around, and of course the whole goal of going to special operations and bouncing around is what to get a spot and hang your hat and be a part of a company, which eventually I got Squad One out in Brooklyn. And that was my permanent assignment in special operations where I stayed until my next promotion, which was captain. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit about squad one? Like you said earlier, I mean, that was at the time, the only squad. So folks who are familiar with, uh, you know, the current FDNY squad system, what was squad one at that time? Squad one was a great place. Again, high quality, really dedicated, motivated people. Um, and, and, you know, anybody can tell you anything they want. I had my favorites. I had my guys that, that I, that I just really loved working with. And, you know, and it was one or two guys there that maybe weren't my favorites, nothing wrong with them at all, but you know, everybody internally measures people, you know, if, how much they are like you, how much they love the job, how fast they turn out, you know, do they pay attention? Do they, you know, do they hop out of, hop off the couch or out of the dinner table quickly when a run comes in? But but for the most part, all the guys, 25 or 27 guys on the roster, it was a, it was a five a five man company. So you know, five in the office with six people. Every seat was full. Uh, we had an old American La France, which which did about 300 miles an hour, I think, because man, oh man, did that thing fly. I uh, I think my eyes were closed for most of the trip on most of the runs. It was pretty dramatic stuff. Um, I almost didn't stay there. I almost didn't stay at the squad. I came home and told my wife one night, I'm not sure I'm going to stay out there. She said, why? It's too far to travel. I said, no, they're scaring the crap out of me on runs, man. They're driving so fast. Now, <laughs> now well, back oh, then, the, the streets of Brooklyn were open. There was no traffic, right? Oh, man. Oh, absolutely. You, you could real. I mean, I'm talking about locking up the wheels, coming in, sliding into boxes and stuff. It was pretty dramatic. And, of course, we were always trying to beat rescue, too. Because rescues two and squad one, a squad and a rescue went on a lot of the boxes together when they were working fires. So we're trying to beat in that big lumbering rescue truck, you know. Um, it, it really, unfortunately, although it's funny, is is a is an indication of my lack of leadership skills back then. Because what I should have said to the guy that was scaring me driving so fast was, "Hey, slow down, or you're going to sit in the back with the rest of the boys." You know, but I was a new officer and I was young and I really loved working there and I really liked the guys a lot. And that's why sometimes it's hard to be a boss in, in the fire department because you hang out with people in the firehouse and you cook and you shop and you play cards and you watch TV and you train and you get to know and like everybody. And then suddenly somebody does something that you don't like. It's it's harder to, to say, hey, numbnuts, don't do that again, you know. So, make yeah. a long story short, I stayed. I put my paper in, and I stayed, and I got the spot, and it was a great, it was a great place. The squad in those days was the only one, and we had about ten or twelve battalions that we responded to. So, in the neighborhood, we were the first two engine, which was great. You'd still get a first two job once in a while. We we were not second due. We were not third due. We were just the first two engine, and we didn't respond to anything beyond that unless it was a fire, and then we went as the squad, which was basically like a truck. You'd get in there and do searches. We had saws, we had airbags, we had all sorts of truck tools and uh, it made it very interesting. So we would travel sometimes just a few blocks out of our first response area and we'd be the squad or sometimes we'd go five miles to, to you know, the two, three, the three, three battalion or the three, one battalion 
and we would do work elsewhere. Obviously, the squad went to bigger jobs, like the, the first World Trade Center explosion. Squad One went down to Manhattan, and uh, and and John Fox, who uh, was a, a, another lieutenant in Squad One, uh, got the James Gordon Bennett medal sliding down into the hole, and you know, assisting Kevin Shea on that mm-hmm. first event. So it was a great company. It was a great place, and you can go to big stuff, and you can go to little stuff, and you and you can be the nozzle man on a first two job as well. So I really, I enjoyed being there. I didn't enjoy driving. I think it was, oh gosh, 81 miles or something from my house. It was a long way, and I drove past a lot of really good firehouses to get there. But it was, it was special operations, and it was great guys, and it was was worth it the whole time I was there. And of course, eventually I took the captain's test and got promoted to captain, and I was gone. And somebody else got to got to fill that seat there and have fun for a couple of years. Great. Well, it sounds like a good time, and I think at that point, if you know. I think that was still a fairly busy area. I was lucky as a as a teenager to ride in Bed Stuy, and it wasn't uncommon, you know, for 111 at the time where I would go, they'd do three or four fires on a night tour easily. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I did six. I did six one night and rescued three. Six jobs. It was great. <laughs> uh, uh, incredible. Um, definitely. Yes, uh, definitely it was good. It was running. good. Okay. Yep. yep. Well, so let's fast forward. Um, your column, the fire scene, it's been the back page uh, of Firehouse for uh, well over a decade at this point. Um, so tell us a little bit about the background of the fire scene. How did that column come to fruition? And really, you you were the first back page column we had. Before that, it was um, either a cartoon or uh, it used to be called Parting Shop before you took it over. It was uh, kind of yeah, yeah. ironic. A photo, so, yes. Ha- yes. Yeah. So, so the well, I'll tell you, it's a, that, that is a great story because, again, obviously, it, it's it's a firehouse story. Um, there we are out there in San Diego, and um, Harvey is, you know, Harvey's still the, uh, the boss and, and his crew, right? And uh, so I, I forget how it came, but, you know, you know, you're doing some classes and you're hanging around in between. I was never I was never the kind of guy to do a class and I go out, hang out at the bars and go sightseeing or anything. I usually hung around in the convention center, up in the instructor's room, or I'd go to a couple of classes and then come back or meet somebody or walk through the exhibit hall. So I, I was always around. And um, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I'm, I'm embarrassed because I can't remember his name. Uh, one of Harvey's, you know, like the number, the number two guy there. Um, Jeff Barrington. Jeff, gosh, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed I forgot Jeff's name. Jeff was a great guy, and uh, Jeff, of course, was there with the rest of the folks that were, that were regulars. And um, somehow we got into a conversation. Now, I'm a deadline kind of a guy. <clears throat> Deadlines work really well with me because I'm, I'm aware of them, and I, and I try to comply with them. I try and get my work in, whether it's you know, sending paperwork in to go you know, present at a, at a conference or whether it's to get an article in you know, to the magazine. So I, I mentioned that to Jeff, and he said, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I said, you know, I only write once in a while, but I said, if I don't have a deadline or if I don't have a request or if somebody's not saying, hey, why don't you write something, you know, when I write something, I send it in. So it might have been, you know, a couple of times a year I'd send in a whatever you call a feature article, right? I would come up with some topic, and I'd have some pictures, whether it be tactical or leadership or whatever, training. Um, but anyway, so I'm talking to Jeff about that. <clears throat> And he says, well, what about a column? What do I mean? He said, what about writing a, a column every month? We'd have you in a magazine every single month under a, under a, 
a title of a column, and then you could write different articles every month, but, but you'd have a deadline. You'd have, you'd have a, an article due every month. I said, wow, now that sounds interesting. I'd have to get it in because I got a commitment to do it. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I got to tell you, Pete, there was no mention of the back page. It was just going to be a column. And of course, and, and Firehouse is not full of columns, but they've got, you know, several of them. And they're in every month or every other month or whatever the, you know, the, the particulars are. But so I said, great idea. So he said, just you got to come up with a title for the column. You know, and as we know, the, the, the title of the column is the fire scene. So now where did I get the fire scene? So my, my good buddy, uh, Butch Cobb, retired deputy chief from Jersey City. We've been friends forever. And we met through Firehouse Magazine. And we, we've been friends. He came to my son's wedding and, you know, I've been out to his place in Arizona. And uh, so he was there, of course, <clears throat> presenting as well. So we, we, were, we, we took a little field trip, a little road trip one day, said, here we are out in California. Let's, let's get out of San Diego and go up, maybe drive north and look at the coast and look at some of them little towns where, you know, that are right on the, on the Pacific. And, you know, we're both East Coast guys, you know. So, so off we went. We start driving. We rented a car and we start driving. And we start talking about this. I said, hey. Uh, Jeff just offered me a, a monthly column. He said, oh, that's great. Well, you know, what's it going to be? I said, oh, I don't know. You got to come up with a name. And to make a long story short, <clears throat> I think it's a little late for a long story short already, but um, We're good. Butch said, Butch said, how about, how about the fire scene? And, and Butch came up with it. I said, wow, that's a great, because the fire scene could be, you know, people operating at the scene of a fire, or it could be like the Hollywood scene, meaning what's going on in the fire service, you know? So that's what I selected, the fire scene, and I gave it to Jeff, and Jeff said, great, and, and that's how the fire scene was born. And uh, I'm, I'm still very thrilled that, uh, that, Butch, that Butch gave it to me. I'm very happy with that, and it, uh, it allows me to write just about anything I want. You could write about leadership. You could write about fire department culture. You could write about a serious fire, and I've written about, you know, obviously hundreds of different topics. Uh, and it gives me pretty broad, pretty broad leeway as far as what, what topics I want to write for. So it turned out real well. And, and that's great. I mean, I think over the years, your, your topics have varied from, from leadership to uh, some basic tactics, um, back down to uh, what makes the fire ground a success or not, which is the relationships in the stations with the members uh, and, and, and just the continuity of training as well. So um, across the board. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, I've written articles, dramatic, uh, uh, farewell Andy Taylor, when Andy Taylor died, which was, you know, I used to watch that show on TV, Mayberry RFD and the Sheriff Taylor. When he passed away, I, I wrote an article, farewell, and, and, and it was, and, it was and, and of course I tied it into leadership, all the lessons that you could learn watching that show about Mayberry and, and him and Bonnie Fife being the deputy and, and, and all the lessons that they, that they taught people about morality and, and doing the right thing. and. Um, and some of them are a little bit more pointed. You know, some of them are about, I mean, I remember writing an article about, is an incident command a fallacy? You know, and, and, and I still think to some degree it is. But so I, I try and write things. I don't try and write things that are either debatable or contestable. But sometimes things just, just plop in front of me. Sometimes things just piss me off. I see something or hear something. And I say, you know what? That's got to be talked about. And I'll sit down and I'll bang an article out. I'm telling you in 21 minutes, I'll write an article in 21 minutes. It'll be, you know, seven or 800 page uh, word rather article uh, on, on a topic that has just got my goat 
or th that looks like something being done unjustly or improperly or you know sometimes I see some of these modern ideas being promoted that I think are nonsense and and I'll and you know what I'll write an article and I'll say so and you know you can you can agree or disagree and I think sometimes the debate is uh, is worthwhile. Absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, your, your blog that was on firehouse.com for a while, um, the most controversial one was uh, about the, um, the transitional attack. Um, and that, that right. a lot of discussions. Right. I think it was right before one of the conferences too. And there was a lot of whispering, a lot of folks talking, but the whole thing was it, 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 it got a lot of people engaged in the conversation um, about whether or not it works. And I think that's one thing in the last few years, um, with all the research that's come out, with all the, the efforts that are being put forth by different departments, different you know, research organizations, different schools, um, and the training associations, um, there, there's not one way to fight a fire in every single building, every single department, every place is different. Um, so that's you know, something that you have to look at. There's no templated firefighting strategy and tactics book. Uh, you, you get the fundamentals and the basics, and then as a crew, as a department, you have to kind of create how you're going to approach it and how you're going to attack it. Um, right. Your column is right. Of, yeah, it, it's definitely been brought into discussions uh, over the years. Right. It's, it's one of the voices. You know, it's, it's one of the perspectives in a lot of these different, you know, issues and, and, and discussions. Um, and you're right. The, you know, like politics, there's this a phrase that was, that was developed in the, in the political arena, and it was, you know, all politics is local. Right. Meaning, you know, if you live in New York State, there's a certain tax base, there's a certain way things are done. There's a certain structure to the to the Senate and the, you know, and the governor and the way it's all done. And you go to New Jersey, it's done slightly differently. You go to another state, it's, it's done dramatically differently. Well, well, the same thing with the fire service. All all elements in the fire service are local as well. You go to some places and you've been a volunteer firefighter and I've been a volunteer and I still am a volunteer firefighter. I'm the, I'm the chief of the local volunteer fire department in a town where, where I've lived for 35 years. And we do things a certain way. We, we do things here in South Blooming Grove that would be impossible to do in New York City that you just couldn't do. They don't have the equipment for it, you know. And then and we, and we do things that they would laugh about that that we must do the way we do because of the apparatus that we have and the hydrant situation and the terrain and the size of the houses. So, you know, applying the same rule across the board to different departments is, is insanity. And I've been fortunate enough to be in, in two volunteer fire departments and two career departments and having experience in four different places, two volley and two career has given me a pretty good, a pretty good understanding of how dramatically different things can be even though it looks the same to the passengers or to the people standing on the sidewalk when a fire engine goes screaming by in the middle of the day, the only thing that's the same is, you know, they're red and they get a red light on them and a siren. A lot of other things are different, you know? Yeah. You know, and, and, and before we go back to the call, that's actually a very good point is, so your experience um, through FDNY and then to return to the volunteer side, you, you kind of have to, I assume have a shift in the way you're doing things, right? You might have to not necessarily slow down, but your approach is going to be different. So how do you, uh, when you're on the job in a city is how do you turn off the FDNY, um, um, helmet and, and put your, your volunteer helmet on. That's that a part. great question. That is, that is a great question. And, and anybody who was a, you know, you've heard the term, you've heard the term two hatter, somebody who's a volunteer yes. at home, 
and a career firefighter, whether it's FDNY or Milwaukee or, you know, Dallas. Um, anybody who's a two-hatter lives in that world, and, it, and, it's, and it's a switch. It's a light switch that you have to turn on and you have to turn off. When you, when you get to the city, you're on duty, you're in the firehouse, you're in that, there's, there's an FDNY culture, there's FDNY tactics, there's FDNY tools and equipment and rank structure. And then when you come home to South Lima Grove or Orange County, now it's South Lima Grove Fire Department in Battalion 5, and there is no deputy on duty. There's deputy, you know, deputy uh, county coordinators or whatever they call them, and, and they'll come in to assist you at a fire, but they're really not your boss. So if you're the chief of your fire department, you go on a run like a battalion chief would in New York City, but nobody comes to relieve you. You have it for the whole fire. You're, you're the boss for the mm. whole job, right? Which, which, now, now that's the same in some paid departments too, some small paid departments. Battalion chief goes out the door and nobody ever comes to relieve him. Maybe a chief has to come from home if it's a certain level of an operation, and maybe that happens or maybe not. So, so the point is they're so dramatically different. They're both fire departments. They're both red rigs. That we got helmets and coats and hose, and but we do it a little differently in South Lima Grove. Water is a different situation. We don't have many hydrants. We do folder tanks. We do tanker shuttles. Um, we do one bottle, two bottle, three bottles, whatever we got to do to put the fire out with however many people we have in New York City. You don't. Know, you do one bottle and you come out. Now maybe sock, you know, rescue and squad might put another bottle on now and then. But typical engine, when they come out, they're done. They send a fresh engine in. They call more. They get they get two hundred of them. They, they they get plenty of engines. So yeah, it's it's if if you just do FDNY and then you come home and you're not a volunteer fireman, you'd never ever know that that difference existed. You see the fire trucks drive by, you might even think they're just like you, and they're not, and they're different. So it's, so it's pretty interesting, but it also allows you to, to bring new ideas back and forth. Sometimes I, sometimes I bring something from South Lima Grove into the city firehouse, an idea of something that we did, and guys are like, where did you see that? And not mind where I saw it. It's a good idea, right? So we'll try and do that. So, yeah. That's great. And I never saw you as a fold the tank guy, so uh, I learned something new today. I'll, I'll definitely remember that moving forward. Oh, man, you're not kidding. So, so the columns, um, and, and again, you've written dozens, so I, you know, it, it's not going to be easy to pinpoint them specifically, but, um, where do you get your motivation? I think anybody who does a column and a column, you know, in the media world is uh, something like on a consistent basis. Some, some of our columnists are monthly, some are bi-monthly, some are quarterly. Um, so 12 months a year, um, your article comes in ahead of deadline and, and thank you uh, from all the editors. We appreciate that, but how do you how do you find uh, the motivation to do that? You know, that's that's another good question because <clears throat> I don't know because I really don't know. They, they they come in they come in different ways. It's sort of like mail. You know, sometimes you get an envelope, sometimes you get a package, sometimes it's nonsense, sometimes it's something you've been waiting for. So sometimes I'll experience something or I'll do something. I'll be like, wow. Look at that. that is a, or I'll go somewhere on a conference and I'll teach a class and afterwards go to the firehouse for dinner and or talk to guys out in the hallway and they'll show me something. I'll be like, holy crap. I, I, have, I would have never ever thought of that. And suddenly I have an idea. And then my mind will be, my mind will be racing. And that night I might go home to the hotel, not home, to the hotel at a conference. And I might spend an hour writing an article on something that I discovered that afternoon in a class or after a class or out of class. Other times I'll see somebody doing something ridiculously 
stupid, ridiculously incorrect, ridiculously dangerously. I mean, just ridiculous. Whether it's on a video or on a YouTube or on the news. And I'll be like, I can't believe that's even being done. Like, like I can't believe anybody in the world puts a firefighter at the tip of a ladder that's got a ladder pipe on it. I can't believe anybody does that. And I wrote an article on that. I forget what it was called. But I wrote an article on that about how ridiculous that is. You're risking a life. You're putting a ladder pipe up. What does that mean? It means you already shitted this thing up. You already but this building. We're not putting this fire out because we're putting ladder pipes up. It's not a, right? Why would you risk somebody's life? The ladder could fail. And I have pictures of aerial ladders on the street, you know, wiggling down the street, broken, crashed into the street. And you see the hose line on top of it with the ladder pipe at the end. So anyway, there's an example. And I wrote an article when I saw that one time on the, on the cover of a magazine or, or somewhere. Um, so that's the second way. That's another way I, I do articles. Sometimes it's a okay. sometimes it's a new issue, like you mentioned before, like like uh, you know hit, hitting it hard from the yard or some of the new things that are coming up. Sometimes I'll comment on them, you know, positively or negatively, depending on whatever the issue is, you know. Well, and, and so from that perspective, so you, you know, you mentioned if you might see something on the news or something like that. You know, that's one thing when we consider covers or interior photos, hotshot photos, photos that go with articles, you know, we, we give it a good look. Um, unfortunately, you know, it is uh, a 60th of a second or a 500th of a second or a thousandth of a second when you see a still image, right? When you see a video, you're going to see a short snippet. Um, so, you know, as you're, as you're making your decision to write something, much like we have to decide, like, that firefighter may not have their gloves on, but, you know, we could still run the photo without, you know, putting that person out to catch a lot of flack. Right, because he put him on nine um, seconds later before he got, you know, before he went in. Yeah, right. yeah, he, he he's stretching the line. He's going past the building. He's not going in at that point. Um, you know, and, and we've had to do that. We've had to make phone calls just to say, hey, you know, before we run this, can we understand the background? Because we will get emails. We will get phone calls. And we want to know what it is that's going on. It's our job from the media side is to be able to explain that down the road. Um, Right. So, you know, when you're looking at some of these things, um, you know, are, are you talking with other folks? You, do you try to get the background of that particular incident so you have a better understanding of what's going on? I must admit, no. No. When, when I see something, I see what I see. And if I make comments on it, I base it on what I see. I try to keep it accurate as far as what's, what's going on in the picture. And most of the time, if there's a question about, well, gee, I wonder if they laid that line in or if that line was already there from the previous pump. I, I might even include that in the article. Say, well, there was a line in front of the building, which may have been laid by the first engine before they got there, but I just saw this one roll in, you know? Um, okay. A lot of times you see stuff on, on, you know, online or, you know, YouTube, and it would practically be impossible to track it down and ask anybody anything, anything about it. So it would, it would delay. It would delay the surge of energy that I, have, that I want to write about, you know? Now, I'm not saying I go off half-cocked and I, and I write stuff that's, you know, just, you know, I just come write, throw it off the handle. But on the other hand, I try and, I try and write, I try and create when, it, when I'm hot, when a topic has really got me, got me going. Sometimes I don't write for three weeks, and sometimes I write three articles in one day. So wow. okay. that's because I got to be motivated. I got to be, you know, motivated to write about the topic. It's just not like, 
Uh, I got an article due next week. Let me write something. Let me see. Let me see. All right, there's an axe. Let me write about axes. That's not what I do. I write about stuff that's got me boiling or got me smiling or got me whatever, you know. Okay. So so let's jump into some of the columns, uh, some of the fire scene columns from the last uh, few years. Um, I, you know, I pulled up online uh, some of the most read over the last few years. Uh, some of them have actually been fairly recent pieces. Um, do you want me to go through those, or do you want to throw out some of your favorites? Well, actually, actually, I, I got a couple here. I got a couple here, okay. and if I if I run out and and we, and you know you need some more material, I'm sure you have a few. Um, one of my favorite, I, I think it's I think it's fairly recent. Um, how was it? Seventeen. And and. Gosh, March of 17, March of 2017, I wrote, we are number two. And, I, and, and I'm just, I wish you could see me right now, I'm smiling. Because, you know, everybody in the fire service, or most people in the fire service have been taught over the years, and I've heard it a million times, we're number one, we come first, we take care of ourselves first and then take care of them. And, and I could not, you know, I, I really couldn't disagree with that more. And I'm not saying that we're not important. I'm not saying that my friends and my coworkers and my firefighters and my subordinates are not all important because we're all important. But I think what's being forgotten in the modern fire service is again a new generation of people coming up. And I'm not going to categorize a whole generation as you know all believing the same thing. But th there are an awful lot of people out there pushing pushing the concept that we come first, no matter what, above everybody else, all the time and forever. Meaning, ah, if we get to you, we get to you. If we don't, you die. But we're not getting hurt. You know, we're not going in there. That might flash over. That might be hot in there. It might be dangerous. Holy cow. We don't know what's going and, and I wrote, And I wrote an article called We Are Number Two. And I said, you know, of course we take care of each other. Of course we train. Of course we don't. You know, I don't want to throw any lives away. I don't want to throw somebody's life away. I don't say, get in there, you cowards. You know, if there's fire out every window and out the door from top to bottom. On the other hand, when you pull up to a house at two o'clock in the morning, that from from every perspective looks like an occupied house. It's it looks just like the houses on both sides of it, and the rest of them down the block. The grass is cut. There's a flag flying off the front porch. The front porch bug light is on. The the, the yellow light is on next to the front door. And there's a car in the driveway. And it's two o'clock in the morning. You don't you don't have to tell me that that's an occupied house. I'm an experienced fire officer, and I know that's an occupied house. There's a family in there. The great, there's a great chance that there's a family in there. And I'm going to treat that like a, like, like a rescue is necessary, like, like people's lives are going to depend on it, getting in there and searching and or putting the fire out. And there are people out there who are saying, people in our business, people in the fire service that say, well, you know, unless you actually get a call, you might have to be careful. You might have to knock that down from the outside since there's no visible people and then go in. And I'm like, what? What do you mean knock it down from the outside? Well, if you knock it down from the outside, then you're reducing the chance of a flashover happening when you do go in there a few minutes later. I'm saying, really? That's our priority is, is keeping the flashover off of us? What about that mother and child on the first floor bathroom or in the first floor hallway that are on the floor unconscious waiting to be rescued? We stretch down the driveway to put a line in the window and waste three more minutes doing it. Now, you can apply that to we are number two, or you can apply it to exterior streams. I mean, I've written more than a couple of articles. You know, does water push fire? Those are three different articles I just mentioned. All of them rotate around that concept of using a stream from the outside to protect who? Us. Us first and them second. So I just tried to make the point in a, in a, in a back page article 
of 800 words that, you know what, we're not number one. At a certain time of the day or the night, when we pull up to something and there's a situation, sometimes you got to put your big boy pants on and go in and say, holy crap, Batman, we might get hurt here. You know? Yeah, I know. Put your hood up and let's go. You know, you, we can't always stay safe. So, I mean, I could go on all day about that, but that's one of my favorites. We are number two. Okay. I got another one that I love. From the heart and your experience, too. I mean, that's, you know, it goes back to, again, that is that you, you know, you came up through a time in the fire service where there's plenty of fires. Um, so um, it wasn't uncommon for your, you know, for your actions to be in that, in that, uh, in that realm of, of um, suiting up and going right in. Right, right. And I, and I learned that from some great bosses. You know, Jack Doherty was my captain in 11 truck. And, and, you know, Pete Lund was my boss in Rescue 3. I mean, I'm talking about great people, great fire officers who were on a job 10 years ahead of me. And, and you know, I got on 79, they got on a 69. We're talking about people, you know, we're talking about people that saw more fires in 10 years than anybody on the planet has seen in their whole career. You know, mm. so... Those are the folks that broke me in, along with the stuff that I saw. You know, so it worked out, uh, and, and I'm very proud of that. I don't, I don't consider myself old news or outdated because fires haven't changed. Although people keep telling me that, oh, fires have changed a lot. Fires, fires have changed a lot from from, from when? From when? I, I was in an eleven truck in 1981, 81, 91, 2001, 2011. That's 30 years right there, just to 11. And we're not at 11 anymore, we're at 20. That's almost 40 years ago. And I remember Jack Doherty, when we were training, we had citywide drills back then, and he'd be reading and talking about all the gases that are coming off of the, the, the furniture that's all made out of plastic when everything heats up. The fires were different back then. We, we weren't putting fires out with stuffed hemp chairs and stuff like that, you know? So anyway, like I said, without, without beating a dead horse, interesting stuff. And a lot of it is, is current. Um, my, my next, I don't want to call it my next favorite article, but another, another article, again, a uh, fairly recent article. It's from, it's from 2018, February of 2018. And I mentioned it earlier for, for just a brief moment. Is incident command a fallacy? And, and, of course, the subtitle, I guess they call that the deck, right, is are you an incident commander yeah. or, or are you an agency commander? And I know the answer to that question. We're all agency commanders. None of us are incident commanders. Let, let's face it, they're stroking us, okay? The incident command system is a wonderful thing, and it's valid, and it applies, and it's helpful. But most of us don't practice it, and that goes from the FDNY all the way down to the Mayberry Fire Department. When I go to a fire in the FDNY, I was the commander of what? The 18th Battalion, the FDNY. Not a single cop ever ever reported them to me to report what they saw, what they did, what, the, what they found or information that they had. Only towards the end of my career did EMS report it to us. And why? Because they were part of my agency. Because, because Rudy Giuliani got rid of, got rid of their agency title and, and uniforms and, and incorporated them into, folded them into the fire department as a bureau of the fire department. So suddenly I would have EMS captains approaching me as fires. How you doing, Chief? Captain Smithwick? I'm the, I'm the EMS captain. I have a, you know, a BLS unit at that end of the street and an ALS unit down at that end of the street. And I have the radio. I'm listening in. If you need something, please call me. Now, that was a true incident command situation. But for the most of the rest of us, even here in South Women Grove, where I'm the chief now, I don't even have the, the, the ability 
I don't have the ability to get on the radio and talk to either EMS or the police department. And most operations I go to are either medicals or accidents or fires. And both of those agencies are generally there with us at every incident. And I have to go over and talk to them if I want to talk to them, which I must admit most times I do not. I do not. I command my agency. Some police sergeant commands his agency. Some EMS captain commands his agency. We all manage to work together and get the job done, most of it verbally together. And and the, and the incident command, I'll call it a fallacy because I did write that and I still do truly believe that. And the incident command fallacy is mostly on paper and at executive fire officer classes, which are very valid, good, you know, valuable training experiences for people. But some stuff that's taught, just like college, just like high school, some th stuff that's taught is simply stuff that you have to listen, remember, get right on the test, and never use again. And some stuff that's taught you're going to use for the rest of your life. So uh, the incident command system is one of my favorite uh, whipping boys, you know. But uh, well, and I think you know, again, depending on where you're where you're at, too. Um, you know, a, a lot of that's based on the major incidents, right? The incident command systems coming down the west coast with the with the major brush fires, where Literally, I mean, it is an interagency event, right? You could have 60, 70 departments worth of uh, uh, firefighters and equipment on scene. So you have to have that coordination. Uh, but when you're dealing with, with uh, um, you know, they're dealing with evacuation, right? And, and middle schools and, and hospitals and, and for structure fire, depending on the size, you know, you're a scope of command. Right, right. However, however, you know, it's, it's the incident command title that uh, it's your relationship or your interaction with the other agencies, with the, with the people that don't work for you. Even if you're the only chief yeah. that's going to be there and nobody's going to relieve you, you've still got EMS and PD coming in. And, and very rarely do we talk with each other. You know, I see EMS arrive. I see them go over to the vehicle that's rolled over and, and, and start treating that, the single patient. And I see them loading an ambulance, and I might send a guy over there and say, find out where they're going. Oh, we're going to go to St. Luke's. And that, that's all I need from them. That was my whole interaction with them. They had their own boss that was saying, put a collar on a guy. Get him over here. Don't interbate him. Now, obviously, that's not my expertise, but I, I couldn't even talk to him on the radio if I wanted to because it's not provided. Now, listen, I know police departments in this little town that I live in. There's the police department in Blooming Grove, and there's a police department in Washingtonville. And they cannot speak to each other on the radio because they're not, they are not so equipped. They cannot speak to each other on the radio. And they're both police departments in adjoining jurisdictions. Somebody might rob a bank in Washington and drive into Blooming Grove, and there's, there's difficulty in communication. I find that obscene. Obscene. <laughs> okay. All right. Valid point. Valid point. Um, what else do you have? From your, yeah, I got failure as a motivator was an article I wrote back in uh, 13, uh, December of 2013. Failure as a motivator in firefighter training. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I, I remember watching some videos and, and, and classes where, uh, and, I, and, I, and I did this myself often, where it was, the class was set up, the evolution was set up, set up, designed, so that the firefighters that were performing the task would fail. I thought it was great. 
It was like doing a search and you hide the kid somewhere. You put the kid behind the door, you open the door, or you close the door enough that the kid is pretty much unfindable. And the lesson of the, of the whole evolution is make sure you check behind the door. So you send guys in there two at a time to search the room. We know there's somebody in there. There's definitely a kid in there. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And, you know, you, you add urgency and heat and, and yelling on the radio, and, and they come out, chief, we, could, we couldn't find them. We checked the whole place. They're not in there. Take the face pieces off, walk them in there, swing the door open, say, right there, there's the kid. That's a great lesson. It's a failure, isn't it? They failed. Mm -hmm. They didn't find the kid. They came out and said, nope, negative, he's not in there. There he is. This kid's dead. You guys missed this kid. He's dead. What's the lesson? So, uh, you know, there's a great opportunity to use failure as a motivator in training. You don't want to do it every lesson, every class, every day, every drill night. But if you selectively, you know, if you, if you accurately and, and, you know, in a well-timed, well-thought-through manner, pick out situations where you can design people to fail to make a point, to make a teaching point, I think it works really, really well. People remember mistakes. You can do stuff really well all day long. You might not remember what you did. But if you make one mistake, especially in front of other firefighters, right, who God knows they're not going to say anything to you later about that, about you doing something wrong, right? If you do that, I think that's a great learning opportunity. Yeah. The learning from mistakes is uh... – I think it's critical. Even you know, a few years ago in a class I was in uh, at school, it was the same thing. Is um, the, the half that class was um, um, was a speech class, and you know, you remember how to do something after you, you flub in front of 500 people. Um, I try it 25 times on your own. You don't remember anything. 500 people in your brain, and it's there for the rest of. Uh, rest of your life you know that uh, you have to turn this on turn that off trigger that don't trigger whatever it is um right right and attach this first and then turn up the yeah yep yeah as long as it's <laughs> a controlled environment so uh, oh exactly as long as it's a training situation and you're not pushing people into real situations um i've heard it yeah. i've heard it said that experience is the process of doing stuff wrong learning from your mistakes and then doing it right and there's some there's some truth to that as well that's good. So, what do you That's have? Very good quote. Do you have any articles that uh, jumped out or were very popular or most read or anything like that? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the ones I pulled up, um, there's a few. One's only uh, about two months old, um, and it kind of goes back to what you started off with from from some of your favorite columns. Is uh, uh, time is not on their side. Um, Gosh, I love that one. And that was about, I love that one. Can I? Go ahead. No. No. Go ahead. I'll, I'll tell you what happened. I went to a conference out west, out in um, Portland. It was a great conference, firemanship conference, coming up again. And uh, really a, a great, interesting program they put on there. It's like, a, oh, gosh, seven or 800 people show up. And, and there's only one instructor at a time. Sit in this big, gigantic room, the Crystal Palace, I think they call it. Big, beautiful, old building. 700 people in, like, one room watching each person one at a time. Pretty impressive. Um, it was so big that actually a lot of the instructors were on the floor below. They had like a green room, like you could hang around and they had soda and beer and, and drinks and chips for you. And then next to that was the room where lunch was served. It's the room underneath the big presentation room. And it was tables and chairs and a big screen TV, which was live of what was going on upstairs on the stage. And they had maybe a half a dozen couches and, and comfortable chairs around that screen. 
And I would go downstairs and grab a soda and sit down on one of those chairs. And one day I watched the program, and it was a young firefighter. I believe he was an officer. And he was talking about time, talking about time management and how important it is for us to get there, turn out quickly, know what we're doing, be able to get dressed quickly, and get in there to put the fire out and save the people. Pretty, pretty basic concept, right? So, so I'm watching, and he's got some videos playing, and he's up on the stage going back and forth talking. And he says, all right, he said, I'm trying to teach my guys how to get their face piece, helmet, hood, and gloves on as quickly as possible. He said, so we filmed a couple of guys doing it, and, and it took an awful long time. You know, either they get slowed down by putting their gloves on, or they put the gloves on first, and then it really slowed them putting everything else on, or they, the, the helmet was last or first. And he went through a bunch of scenarios of how long it took. And he said, I finally started figuring out, instead of having my helmet off on the ground in front of me with the, with the gloves in the helmet and pulling my hood up and putting my face piece on and tightening the straps and then reaching down and grabbing my helmet and putting it on and then putting the gloves on, he said, the first thing I learned how to do was to take my helmet and just extend the chin strap and flip the helmet backwards. And now it's on my back, but the chin strap's still around my neck. Now the helmet's still practically in place. I just got to reach back and get it up. And, and it cut seven seconds or eight seconds off of his time to do that whole evolution. He said, then I figured out how to do it with my gloves on. Instead of doing it without gloves and then spending another four seconds or five seconds putting my gloves on, he said, I put my gloves on first. Bing, bang, bing, bing, boom, boom, that done. He said, once you get used to doing it with your gloves, it's not a problem. It's because you don't train with your gloves on that you have to do it without it. And he did this and he did that. And he took about 12 or 13 seconds off his 40-second time. And then, and then now this is him teaching. And he says to the audience, and then one of my firefighters says, hey, Captain. Yeah. He says, I mean, what's the big deal, Cap? 12 seconds? He said, I mean, it took us four minutes to get here. What's 12 seconds? He said, I can afford to lose 12 seconds putting my stuff on right and double checking that my gloves are on. And you know what the instructor said to his firefighter? He said, those are not your 12 seconds to give away. They don't belong to you. They belong to the people inside the building who are waiting for you to get in there. Even if it took you four minutes to get here, that's their 12 seconds, not yours. I'm telling you, Pete, I almost lost my breath. I was like, holy crap, what a great concept. The ownership of the time it takes you to get ready and stretch a hose line and put your stuff on and get in there and bleed the water, that's not your time. That's their time. This goes back to we are number two. You know what I'm saying? It's not our time to, to blow off and say, come on, it's 10 seconds, I'll, I'll do without it. No, you can't give it away. It doesn't belong to you. So that's why I wrote that article. I thought it was very important to make the point that it doesn't belong to us. You're obligated to know your job and do your job and do it not good, not really good. Do it excellent in an excellent manner very quickly so we can get in there and give those people a chance to survive. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was very well received online. And, you know, so I guess what, you can't really make up response time, right? You, you, it's tough to shave off seconds because there's nothing, uh, you know, the traffic, uh, stoplights, whatever it would be, that's completely out of your control. Um, and what's the saying? Um, you respond to somebody's uh, work day, right? So it's their work right. day. 
elongated by another 12, 15 seconds, whatever it is, because you're not proficient with your skills to, to do what it is you're supposed to be doing. Um, so, yeah, that was well received. That was uh, one of your top reds. Um, another one um, I think is really important um, is preserving the firehouse family. Um, yeah, that was fire service is, is different. <clears throat> um, so can you tell us a little bit about that, the column, and, you know, again, just your experience and, and you know, where you're seeing things at and, uh, you know, where, uh, you know, why the importance of, of quality time with uh, the brothers and sisters in the firehouse is good. And, and that was, and, and that's the great thing about uh, the fire scene is I, I can jump around from, you know, a, a forcible entry article to a, you know, uh, we are number two to the fire service family. And the fire service family is important too because that's something that we have. I don't want to say that nobody else has, but it is, that is largely true. You know, even in law enforcement, even cops, and cops, cops are wonderful. I can't believe they get anybody to even be a cop nowadays with all the absolute nonsense that's going on in the world from shootings and stabbings and people throwing stuff at them and being disrespectful. Um, but even so, by, by um, by virtue of the structure of most police departments, most cops are either A, by themselves, most of their shift, or B, with one other person in, in, in a car. I mean, they might hook, out one, hook up once in a while in a parking lot. You see two police cars with the, you know, with the driver's doors next to each other, and they're bullshitting with each other, and then one guy gets a call, and the other guy goes back out on the road. But, but for the most part, police departments are structured, so most cops are out there by themselves, or with a partner, and they're not with the rest of the cops. They're not with the other 23 cops that are on duty in the in the 4-4 precinct or the other five cops that are on duty in, in, in Lindenhurst, Long Island. Um, but that's not true in the fire service. In the fire service, we're together. We're in a big group. We're in a big family, and that's volunteer or paid. It's the same. Tonight is Wednesday night, 7 o'clock tonight. I'll be at the South Little Grove Firehouse, along with 25 other guys, officers, firefighters, checking the batteries and filling the fuel tanks and doing a drill and going upstairs for a soda with pretzels afterwards. And it's a social gathering as much as a, a technical, tactical operation. And the same thing in, in, you know, rescue three or 18 battalion where I spent the last years of my career, you go in and you're with this group of people in this firehouse <clears throat> for 24 hours. People used to ask me, Oh, uh, Hey chief, uh, you work in a city, right? I say, no. Guy says, I thought you were on a job at FDMY. I said, I am. In the 18th Battalion, in the Bronx? I said, yeah. Oh, so, so you work in a city? I said, no. The guy's like, what, what's, what's the catch here? What's going on? I said, I don't work in a city. I work in the firehouse. Cops work in the city. If you're a cop and you, you leave Orange County and drive down to New York City, or you leave Demers, New Jersey, and you drive down to New York City, when you get down there, you go inside the precinct, you shower, you change, you get in your uniform, you strap the pistol on, and you go out into Schittsville. You go out onto the streets, and you are mingling and, and, and encountering good guys, bad guys, dangerous situations, funny situations. Maybe you have a party, you stop by for a deli or a bodega somewhere, you have lunch, and then you go somewhere else. You're out in the streets all day long. We're not. I drive down to the city. I go in the parking lot in the back. I go up the back steps. I'm not in the city yet, and I'm in a parking lot. I go up the back steps. Where am I? I'm in another house. This one happens to be a firehouse. I'm in the kitchen. There's five guys drinking coffee. There's the end of the Yankee game on, 
How you doing, Chief? Ah, pretty good, guys. You working tonight? Yeah. All right, good. Yeah, we get steaks, too. I walk upstairs. I take a shower. The Yankee game's on in the office. I talk to my relief, my partner that's going home. He leaves. I put my gear on the rig. I walk downstairs. Say hello to another guy. How you doing, Billy? Good. Are you in a truck tonight? Great. I'm in this house. There's a living room, a dining room, a kitchen, a bedroom. There's TVs on. I'm not in the city. I'm in a firehouse. So that, that's what creates this firehouse family that we all experience. You know, in a pay department, it's a little bit tighter because we spend a lot more time together because we're doing a 40 or 50 hour week with each other. But it's the same across the board, whether you're in a small volunteer department or, or a career department in a small or a large city, we get to know each other much better. And that's a very, very valuable, you know, element of what we do. And, and it, it, I think it very positively affects, you know, how we do our jobs. The fact that we're all very well versed with each other and very familiar with each other. And, and I can't say we all necessarily like each other, but I've never treated a guy differently at a fire. I've treated a guy differently inside the firehouse that I liked or didn't like, but I've never treated somebody differently at an operation based on whether I thought they were a good firefighter or a polite firefighter or worthy of my, you know, my attention. So that whole firefighter family thing is a, is an interesting aspect that we have in the fire service that a lot of other people, sanitation men and, and guys that work in a highway department, you know, maybe they have their little highway department crew that, that hangs out with each other during the day when they're fixing holes in the street, but it's still not the same thing as what we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, uh, I mean, it, it, it's unique across the country and, and, you know, these places, it's interesting because um, having lived in a couple different places and then being fortunate enough to, I guess, you the guys who are working at Firehouse to ride out in different cities, um, you know, the, the cohesion is a lot stronger when you have firefighters who are, you know, granted FDNY's got, you know, the, the 25 groups and whatnot, um, but when you have folks who are on a consistent basis working at, you know, Engine 1 or Engine 2, whatever it is. Right. Um, or the same ship. Know, when I was, right. Right. Yep. Yeah, where, whereas the pool or swing or however you want to look at other places, there's not that cohesion. There's not that, you know, uh, sense of, it, it's still that the sense of family is there, but it's just not tight knit, um, you know, in the station when somebody's floating through for a day, when somebody's covering or, you know, some places I think, you know, rookies are um, the first year or two, they're bouncing around from station to station on every shift. So um, they really, you know, they're just another person passing through, and, and you could tell the personalities are different, and you don't know, you know, you don't know until the game on what's really going to happen in that regard. Yes, yes. You have time for one more? Yes, absolutely. So the the, the reason I'm bringing this one up is because, um, and and it's been on a number of my articles. A lot of times, I'll have a conversation with one of my friends or one of my officers or one of my firefighters. And it'll bring something up and I'll say, wow, that's pretty cool. I never thought of that. And bang, I'll write an article. And I, and I never hesitate to put the names of the guys in there. And I mentioned, I mentioned several of my coworkers and some of my subordinate officers and some of my superior officers. Um, I, I never hesitated to mention if it was positive. I've written some articles about talking and screaming. And I mentioned that I have had some bosses that screamed a lot. Of course, I didn't mention the guy's name. But if I have an article talking about something positive, I'll throw the guy's name out. And one of them is uh, an article that I wrote back in uh, April of 19, and it's called Parallel Operations. And, and, and the, you know, the, the subtitle of the deck is Implementing a Second Strategy Even Before the First One Fails. And I'm saying, now, that's a pretty unique concept. And where did I get that? From my buddy, 
Jay Jonas. Jay's a division commander, acting division commander, deputy chief in the 7th Division. Jay Jonas and I are very good friends, been friends for years. We were in the same probie class together back in 79. He went to the Bronx. I went to Midtown Manhattan, as I already mentioned earlier. Eventually, we ended up both where? In Rescue 3 together, and we got to know each other again. It turns out he lived up near me upstate. He was born and raised up here. I moved up here from Long Island, but we ended up getting to be friends. And we we were in the same study group. We started studying for lieutenant, for captain. Um, as I mentioned, I went to 11 truck. He went there years later as a lieutenant to the same firehouse that I worked in and was lieutenant there for a while before he got promoted. And, oh, I guess it was a little earlier in 2019, I was talking to him about a fire he had. And he said, oh, he said, I frequently um, start to develop my next strategy. When I'm at a fire and things don't look like they're going well, he said, sometimes I actually start to set it up. I'll call another tower ladder and an engine and set the tower ladder up over there and have that engine supply them, even though we're not going to an outside operation yet, even though I still got companies inside pushing in. He said, because I'm getting ready for 48 engine to say, we got to back out, chief. This thing is going bad. We, you know, it's not going to happen. We're going to either have to get two more lines down here or we're going to have to go. He said, and I get ready for that. He said, I actually start to implement it. I actually start to um deploy companies and assign units to tasks and stretching lines, even though I don't put them into operation yet. He said, I've, I've sent companies into the first floor of a cellar fire while companies were downstairs fighting the fire. I've sent companies into the floor above, which is the first floor, and either had them cut or prepare to cut a hole over the fire. So if the guys downstairs couldn't put it out with the hose line, I would be able to pull them out. And then almost immediately, drop the cellar pipe in the hole and put the fire out. He said, I'd have the hole cut, the line stretched, and the cellar pipe attached to the end of the hose, even while the guys were fighting the fire. He said, I would never put it in there while they were fighting it. But if it didn't go well, I would tell him, okay, 48 engine, back out, 1-8 battalion, back those companies out of the basement. And the minute that they clear the basement, up, he turned that cellar pipe on. Instead of saying, get me an engine in here with a cellar pipe, now it's another three-minute delay. So I thought that was a unique, unique concept. And, and that's how that column was born, parallel operations. And I thought it was pretty interesting. And I wrote it and mentioned Jay Jonas right up front. And I hope that that's something that some chief officers somewhere else said, gee, that's an interesting concept. Let me, let me think about doing that at my next fire. So that was another way that an article you know, came, came to be. Good. Uh, that's 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 a really good uh, perspective, and and you know, fortunately for you, you're engaged in a lot of conversations, um, you know, going around the country teaching. Um, so you're you're in a great spot to be able to, you know, steal these steal stories. stuff from people. Yeah, steal stories. Stuff from people. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have to be careful with copyrights, but uh, but you know, it's far, well, I mean, far, like, like I, I, I always give credit. Sharing. Right. I always give credit. I always mention, you know, where I saw something. The one where I talked about the guy with the face piece saving time and it's their time. You know, I, I gave credit. I gave credit to the instructor where I come up with these ideas or where I hear these ideas. And I'm just repeating them. I'm just, I'm just really a storyteller. You know, I'm, I'm just telling stories about stuff that I'm picking up somewhere else. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that. You know, thank you for doing that over the years with us. Um, you know, uh, I, Really, just you know, the, the ability for you to be consistent month after month, we really appreciate it. You have no idea how much, and and you know, the readers are flocking to it once it comes out online every month. Um, you know, folks are clicking on it, and 
you know, we know people are still discussing it in the stations uh, when, when the magazine hits the streets. So uh, we appreciate That's what's that. interesting is the fact that you guys can measure uh, the interest level in an article online, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, data, um, data is an amazing tool. Uh, sometimes it really is um, right. really beneficial to us. So, um, so before we wrap up, um, I, I just want to get a little advice from you before we close out. But uh, for um, uh, or or as we're making the Firehouse Expo selections, the conference is coming up in Nashville in July. I uh, just want to plug your two programs if you want to talk about them briefly. Um, we've got the four-hour pre-conference workshop that'll be on Wednesday, July 22nd. That's uh, the Chief Officer's Professional Development Program. And then uh, later in the week, uh, we have the Chief Officer's Combat uh, School. Um, okay. Tell us about those classes and what uh, potential registrants will be able to pull from that. Yeah, sure. The Professional Development Program, you know, Chief Officers, is, is a program I've had for a couple of years. I've done it. I've done it several times in different places, different audiences, different conferences. Um, always very well received. It's it's a long program, as you said. It's a pre-con, and it's well, it's a four-hour, I believe, right? In this conference, I generally do it in either three or four hours, and it's got a lot of information on all the, all the you know. It's, it's all inclusive. It's really all the things that chief officers have to think about and prepare for and practice and get good at you know, to, to, to perform the job, to, to be in that role. Um, and, and, and it's a lot of stuff. It's about communication. It's about accountability. It's about discipline. It's, a, you know, and tactical stuff as well. There's a lot of material there. And, and it's, I don't want to call it a long day. It's a half a day. But any place I've ever, you know, presented that program, I've always got some very positive feedback from people. Because a lot of times people think, well, yeah, the chief stands outside and he talks to the agencies that they're putting the fire out and gets reports of searches, and that's it. And there is so, so, so much more to it than that, and I, and I try and capture that in that class. Um, the, the, the second program the, 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 uh, is, is, is more combat-related. It's more tactically-related. It's more fire scene related There's not too much stuff about, you know, training or preparation or radio communications unless it's the tactical end of it. So, you know, obviously that's a shorter class shorter duration. Um, but again, it's based on uh, first alarm, first level incident commanders, whatever you happen to be. It could be a district chief, it could be a battalion chief. Some people even call the first two chiefs the assistant chief. So I, you know, I, don't, I don't know what they call them. But I'm talking about the first level, lowest level battalion chief, which is what I was. I never went above battalion chief. Um, and that's, that's, that, that's the guy that gets his hands dirty, you know, to some degree. He's the first chief that arrives and for the most part plays the biggest role in in determining the strategy for the operation. So uh, that's what my experience is, and that's where I, that's where I try, and, try and speak from. Okay, great. So um, that's Firehouse Expo Nashville, uh, July 20th through the 25th. Um, you can find more control that, on that at firehouseexpo.com. And, and Chief, as we wrap up today, um, because the majority of your instruction, and we'll have to have you back because we need to talk about saving our own and, and all the work you did there. Um, really didn't have enough time to get into that, but that's that's definitely another uh, podcast for sure. Great, great. From the leadership side, what what can you pass along to the current generation of leaders? What what are two or three nuggets that, uh, that you uh, want to make sure that they're aware of, they're actively um, pursuing in their uh, role as, as – um, fire service officers 
You know, it's. Um, I, I was an officer for way more, way more time, a great many more years as an officer. You know, if you combine everything together, Lieutenant Captain Battaglia, um, than I was as a firefighter. And you know, some of some of the lessons I learned. I ended up writing two books. You know, first in, last out, and then you know, five alarm leadership. Um, and and both of them are based on experience. Both of them are based on you know the the, the stuff. I don't have a degree. I, I, I never took a class. I never took a class or a, or a college course on, on leadership. And I'm, and I'm not condemning those. I'm, I'm sure they're valid. I'm sure there's a lot of good stuff there. On, on the other hand, sometimes just learning from the people. And I, and I, most of the stuff that I learned in the fire service uh, relative to leadership is stuff that I learned from people like Pete Lund and Jack Doherty and, and you know, many others, Vinnie Dunn, people that I worked for and under and with. As, as a company officer and a firefighter, and you just get to learn so much from good people. Now, as I say, along with my buddy Rick Lasky, we teach a company officer academy around the country all the time through Columbia Southern University, another great organization. And, and one, one of the things we learn there is, and we, and we teach there is, you can learn a lot from a bad boss. You can even learn a lot from watching a lieutenant or a captain that really doesn't know what they're doing, or maybe shouldn't even be sitting in that seat but you can still learn some stuff. So firefighters that are interested in being officers someday or being in any leadership role should really start paying attention to, to the bosses around them and how they treat people and how they talk, how they, how they talk to their bosses. Cause everybody's got a boss. Even a battalion chief has a boss, but a company officer, a captain, which is a pretty big wig in, in any fire department, you've got bosses, you've got a, you know, administrative battalion chief probably that, that supervises you at the firehouse. And you, then you got bosses at the scene of a fire. And, and how do people treat? How do your company officers treat their, their, their supervisors, their bosses on the phone? You know, sometimes you see the phone, the captain picks the phone up and he makes a face. Yeah, chief, how you doing? And the guys in the kitchen see the face. Disrespectful. Now, now listen, I'm not saying you have to like the chief that, that who's your boss, but you shouldn't be doing stuff like that. You know, there's a, there's a small set of rules and behaviors that you really should try and conform with and conforming is not a bad thing. People think conforming is bad, but in a fire service, it's good. If you conform to the, to the, to the models of behavior that have been established there already and being company officers, it's very important when you're in a leadership role. And then the company officers do most of the leadership in the fire service to, to follow the rules and, and, and do what's right and, tr and treat people fairly and, and know your job and know what the rules are, know what you're allowed to do and not do, and know what, what is a, uh, a behavior that requires you to discipline somebody or talk about them, and know what behaviors you can let go and mention to the guy later, hey, Billy, don't, don't talk like that in that kitchen. You know, Some stuff can be handled sort of off the cuff on a stairway discussion, and some stuff has to be handled in the office you know, officially and written down. Uh, there's so much... Leadership is such a broad topic that that people have to start paying attention to it. I think years before they start getting involved in doing it. Yeah, yeah. that's solid solid advice. Um, and a lot of it relates to to you know any sort of boss, but the, the pressure is obviously on a little bit more in the fire service. Um, you know, uh, as far as what has to be done, the, the level of severity and importance and time and getting it done so um, i yep. appreciate you sharing those with us um absolutely okay. well chief thank you so much uh any anything else before we close out today nothing i i i 
again, I appreciate you having me. It's a, it's, a, it's always been a pleasure and an honor to um, you know to be writing for Firehouse and to be and to be presenting at at, at all the Firehouse conferences. Um, and this is, I think, this podcast uh, is going to be just add to the uh, add to the you know the realm of things, the uh, the number of things that people can turn to and look to and listen and and watch to try and to try and do the work that we all do a little bit better. You know, I mean, there's always room. I, I've always discovered there's always room for improvement. And if sitting down and listening to John and Pete talk one afternoon for, a, you know, for a half an hour or an hour, if you, if you can pick one thing up, it makes sort of makes the whole day worthwhile, you know? So I appreciate the opportunity to, to jump in on this too. And I look forward to maybe uh, you calling me up down the road and doing another one. Yeah, let's let's definitely uh, figure that out. We'll we'll come back to talk about uh, saving our own because, um, you know, there's there's definitely been a discussion about that uh, kind of being revitalized and, and uh, reinvigorated. Um, so we'd like to learn more about that and all the efforts that you did. Um, you know, countless lives have been saved uh, through through those efforts, and we'd like to hear more about that soon. So um, great, Chief. Well, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Um, for all those who are listening, thank you so much. Uh, our next podcast will be out uh, March 15th and um, we'll be, we'll be looking forward to, to having you folks download and listen. If you have any questions or comments, uh, please send them to Peter at firehouse.com. And uh, thank you so much. I'll stay safe. At MSA, your health and safety drive is to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as an athletic gear for firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your turnout gear. Get the full story at msafire.com globe.